Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear stories of someone brave enough to bear it all. Let's get naked. Your website is caregiverdave.com. So let's jump in there. All right. Tell me all about it. I mean, it's an amazing website. It's huge. It is. It was just rebuilt recently by my nephew because he's he's this guru of websites. And I had a, I had a, I thought I had a pretty good website. I was proud of it. I helped build it, you know. But he said, no, no, that website sucks. You need the goods. And I just thought he was trying to sell me a website, but uh, he wasn't. He was really trying to help me. And I am so glad that I did it. And he gave me a great price. And so caregiverdave.com is a membership website. And what does that mean? That means that I have learned a long time ago because I'm a coach and I've been giving free coaching and counseling since I was a teenager to my loser teenage friends who were trying to get a girl. And I would say, no, 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 you got to do it this way. And if they would follow my advice, they would get the girl. And if they didn't, they wouldn't. And unfortunately, I found over the years that about 95% of people who ask me my advice don't really want my advice because they don't take it. They just want my approval because they've already made up their minds and now they're taking a poll. And if I don't agree with them, then they get upset with me. Now, maybe you've had that experience as well. I think with kids that often happens, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're like, what do you think about this? And I'm like, yeah. this is what I think. They're like, yeah, you're dumb. So, <laughs> so I started charging for my coaching and uh, an amazing thing happened. People started showing up for the calls and not standing me up and started doing the homework and started following my advice. And, and we're actually getting the results that they wanted. And I thought, why? Well, because they have skin in the game now. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's like having a doctor appointment at seven o'clock in the morning. You have to get up at seven for an eight o'clock appointment and you get to bed late last night, you know, maybe 2 AM and you couldn't sleep and you're tossing and turning and that alarm clock rings at seven. You say, there is no way I'm getting out of this bed. But then you remember that a doctor is going to charge you $85. Whether you show up or not, you get out of bed. And that's, that's how it is. So same with the website. It was an amazing website. And, you know, not enough people, I thought, were taking advantage of it. Mm -hmm. So I decided, let me come up with a number. Because people will put a value on things of what it costs them. And if it costs them nothing, like free advice, right? That didn't cost them anything. That's what it's worth. It's, it's worth zero. So I came up with a number, $97, okay? I think every caregiver can afford $97. Now, they probably won't spend it on themselves, but they'll gladly spend it on someone else because that's what they do. They'll give you the shirt off their back. They'll give and give and give and give till there's nothing left to give and then they burn out. So, but this isn't $97 a, a month or a year, it's $97 for the rest of your life. So who can't afford that? One visit to the ER will cost you more than that. A and 30% yeah. of caregivers will die. Okay, so that's even worse than the ER. Um, many more will become hospitalized and become sicker than the ones they care for. These are statistics from AARP and eldercare.com. And now we're in the coronavirus uh, pandemic and any, any caregiver who's burned out has a compromised immune system and are at higher risk to coronavirus. So the, the, the website is a membership website for $97 for the rest of your life. You get access to all of my content for the last seven years. This is blogs, uh, thousands of articles, videos, um, you name it, it's there. Plus I give three free coaching sessions to every new member. And that's worth a lot of money. That's 
actually price this. So three 30-minute coaching sessions they will get. And then they get a copy of my uh, first book and my second book online. And the value is just tremendous. Plus, you become a member of the 47,000, 37,000, I'm sorry, uh, Facebook community. And when you have a problem, you go to the Facebook community and you say, hey, you know, here's what I'm dealing with. You know, my autistic son just ended up in jail and, you know, I'm feeling guilty. It's my fault and this and that. And then you'll find other parents of autistic children, for example, mm -hmm. who will say, no, 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 don't feel guilty. This happened to me too. You know, it's a place to make you feel normal that you're not the only one going through this. You're not the only one feeling guilty and that you it's called a support group. And anyone who's going through something should go through a support group because I couldn't get through mine. Now, I'll tell you a brief history of mine, unless you want more about the website. Well, we're going to jump into, okay. I, yeah, I'll let you guide let's, this. yeah, 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 let's, um, the website is phenomenal mm -hmm. and I'm not a member, so I can't even, <laughs> that's, that's incredible that you give three coaching sessions, two books. So people do people who are in the caregiving realm, I had no idea 30% would die before the person they were taking care of. That statistic, yeah. when I read it on your website, was I was astounded by that. <laughs> so clearly, you're doing everything for everyone else and nothing, not, not enough for yourself. Um, your, let's talk about your books and your radio show. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it, it started out with the book. I think that's the first thing that I did. I wrote a book about uh, my life because that's the easiest thing to write about. So mm -hmm. it's called One Arm, One Leg, 100 Words, Overcoming Unbelievable Hardships. It's a story about my wife and I. And, you know, we had a fairy tale storybook romance. Um, one day uh, after raising three daughters and getting them all out of the house and, and uh, even getting them all married off, each one twice, uh, we decided to just start traveling and stuff and just have the freedom and uh, possess it. And one day my wife complains about this headache she had, a uh, three-day headache going on the fourth day. And it was the headache of her life. She wanted me to call Dr. Kevorkian to put her out of her misery. <laughs> and uh, that's how bad it was. But instead, it got worse and the uh, ambulance came and it was too late. My wife had suffered a massive stroke that left her severely speech impaired, paralyzed on one side. And in that moment, our world turned upside down and everything had changed and we almost broke up. And in that uh, moment of, of just feeling isolated and lonely and, and uh, depressed and, and all these feelings, I, I wrote her a letter. I said, dear Charlene, why are you so mean to me? It's so hard being your husband, taking care of you 24 seven, not feeling any crumbs of appreciation or love in return. I know it's hard on you, but you're making it even harder on me. I just don't think I can be with you anymore. I mean, I'll take care of you financially, but I just can't be with you. You know, and I, I looked at that letter and I read it over and over again. And I said, how can I give this to the, the mother of my children, the, my soulmate, the woman I loved and married 23 years ago? I couldn't. So I just filed it away, went on in my loneliness until I found the a support group because I found a business card in my pocket. Somebody had given it to me, maybe when I was living in the hospital with her for mm. six weeks. I don't remember. I didn't even know what a caregiver was. I didn't know what a support group was. But I figured, well, somebody thinks I need this, so I'll go. What have I got to lose? And I went, and everything changed for me. I learned if I didn't take care of me, I couldn't take care of Charlene. And uh, I was reminded the airlines tell us every single time I tune them out on the plane, 
when uh, an emergency happens, uh, mask will drop. Put your mask on first before you help your loved one with their mask and so on. So I started just being selfish. You know, it, it, it didn't feel good being selfish. I felt guilty about it, but I kept saying, well, they told me to do it and they're the professionals, so I'm just going to trust them. And I got through it. I stopped feeling selfish, stopped feeling guilty. And she slowly started coming around and becoming her old self again. Our love was rekindled. And now we travel the world uh, speaking to caregivers and uh, groups. And I've been on 34 TV shows. I've spoken at Harvard and Carnegie Hall, sharing a stage with Suzanne Summers, Martha Stewart, Ice-T, just doing all sorts of stuff on my fourth book, helping caregivers to stay alive. And uh, the title of my thing that I usually do is how to prevent your loved one's illness or disease from killing you. And so the website uh, came, the radio show came. I've been doing the radio show for seven years. Now I've got three radio shows I'm doing. Uh, one is 21 uh, platforms on a podcast. Another one is syndicated on, in 150, uh, uh, all 50 states, 135 countries. And then the other one I do is uh, about, uh, I interview with my co-host, uh, Neil Haley, uh, celebrity caregivers, because every celebrity has a story, and people seem to be more interested in celebrity stories because they're more interested in celebrities, you know. And so I'm going to write my fifth book. <laughs> got so many books um, <laughs> about just transcribing those celebrity interviews, uh, and I'll you know I'll call it something like you know celebrity interviews or whatever. I got to come up with a cute title. <laughs> very, <clears throat> very uh, yeah. Let's. That's a good starting <clears throat> place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow! So. I mean, your story is so intertwined and it's so obvious the connection between what you're doing and your struggle. So I, I think we're going to kind of weave in and out of that through this yeah. whole thing. I, the first thing that comes to my mind is how are you doing all this? You're still your wife's <laughs> caregiver, okay? Because you're the one telling me I need to take care of myself first and be selfish. But you're on your fourth book. You have three different podcast radio shows. You're traveling the world speaking like where's your selfish time or has this become that <clears throat> what are you doing well How are that's you a doing? good question you know it's not easy being dave dave the <laughs> caregiver caregiver dave <laughs> but uh and you forgot that i i'm also an entrepreneur i own a gas station i've owned it for 40 oh, years I, I, and so you know we're in essential service now so we're running this gas station now we're wearing the mask we have the sneeze guards at the counters we close down the restroom because it's just, you know, sick people are coming in and, and they're stealing all our toilet paper. And I mean, just dealing with all of that. Gas prices are dropping like a rock. Um, and, you know, I had to lay off some people, cut back the hours, close Monday through Thursday because we're open 24 hours normally. Dealing with all of that. And so you ask, well, where's my me time? Well, believe it or not, I am doing great. I am not burned out. And maybe it's my temperament because I'm just a basically uh, the uh, temperament kind of guy. You know, I've got, I'm very equally balanced. You know, I'm a little money motivated, a little cause motivated, a little fun motivated, just a tiny bit, maybe not much organization, anal motivated, you know, so uh, those people are boring anyway. <laughs> the accountants and the engineers, you know, and the CPAs. So um, thankfully, I don't have a lot of that in me. But I, I have a good temperament to be a caregiver, which is unusual because most caregivers are, are women. Mm. So maybe I'm in touch with my feminine side. I don't know. 
but I, I ride my bike every morning. Okay. First of all, I'm very blessed because my wife is very, very independent. She was very independent before and she's still independent. I mean, she was a, uh, gourmet cook still is, uh, interior decorator still is a hairdresser. She does her own hair. She is, uh, was a wedding coordinator for her church. I mean, she's so artsy, craftsy. She's like a Martha Stewart and Wonder Woman all rolled into one. And she a type A personality. She has a stroke and she's just devastated. Two-year grieving period, you know, depression, uh, anger, taking it out on me, the only guy who's around to receive it. We lived in a beautiful house in, in Burbank and two-story. We had to move from that. And that was really ugly because that was her baby. That was her dream house where she was going to just bury me in the backyard, you know. And uh, so kicking and screaming, we moved closer to my gas station, which was 30 miles away, uh -huh. uh, commuted for 19 years. And uh, I couldn't handle both, you know, either the station yeah. was suffering or she was suffering. I says, we, we got to move. And um, uh, I just did it, you know, ultimatum. I says, I'm moving. You can come or you can uh, get your apartment. And she decided to come and she sulked for a couple of years. But then she came around and she started decorating the house because it was all white, no window dressing. And it was, uh, she got better and better and better. And now we have the new normal. We are in, more in love now than we ever have been. And I'm as healthy as a caregiver as I ever have been. I ride my bike. I uh, go to LA Fitness. Well, not anymore because they closed down. But I have a not not pool. as we're taping this now. No. I I have to uh, you know heat the pool now, and it costs a little money. So I I do it on certain days that the family can all come over and go swimming. We just did it yesterday. We're going to do it again Sunday if the sun stays out. We're not used to so much rain here in LA, but uh, I guess we need it because they're always telling us we have, we're in a drought. But that's that's basically the story. I. I do take care of myself. I have my, my personal time. She is very independent. She can cook. She can clean. She can do the laundry. I come home, dinner's on the table. I mean, she does it all with one arm and one leg tied behind her back and duct tape basically over her mouth because <laughs> she still can't talk, but she can communicate through uh, Pictionary and Charades, two games that I happen to hate, by the way, but I'm learning to love. And she still can't walk, but she has this power chair and she goes faster than I am. I mean, she's more capable, you know, I've got arthritis in my feet and it hurts and I complain and she gives me this look like, yeah, try walking a mile in my moccasins, buddy. You know, so she's a tough cookie. And uh, so it's, it's, I won't say it's easy for me to find time for myself, but she, she has time for herself. She likes to work on her iPad because it's good therapeutically anyway. She likes to watch Netflix. And so that takes up a lot of her time. And so I'm at the station and I'm only two miles away and she just, she can bathe herself. She can go to the bathroom, uh, just needs tiny little help with getting her in the shower and out just to, she can do it herself, but I just want to be there to make sure she doesn't fall or anything. And on these uh, short trips, I'll go, you know, like maybe to Tampa for a couple of days or Nashville or, you know, do the TV shows. Now I don't have to, I can do them all on Skype, which is kind of cool. I don't have to travel the country. And so she can stay by herself for a couple of days. Her daughter lives just down the block, basically. And we have a good neighbor and, and they help out by keeping an eye on her. So I am blessed and I am not neglecting my needs. I take care of myself very, very well. 
And so that's why I'm Dave the caregiver. I'm trying to say, do what I do. I, I learned the hard way because for two years I didn't. And I was a mess and I had to like steal away in the night for the weekend to go to visit uh, relatives in Nashville and Miami and New York, uh, cousins I haven't seen in decades. And, uh, you know, she was upset that I left, but I had to leave. It was either that or, or burn out. And I would come back rejuvenated, recharge batteries and, and, and I did it again. And, uh, and yeah. you know, that was my, my, how I survived the grief process. I want to, there's so much that I want to talk to you about at this point. <laughs> um, but I love the fact that you, I mean, you figured out what works for you and you've had time, like you've said, to yeah. figure this out. But you decided if riding your bike is what you want to do and keeping that gas station going and moving closer. I mean, you had to make some really tough decisions on what yeah. you needed in order to, to work well in the situation. And not all of them were fun decisions. No. Right. I want to go back to she lost her car too. She couldn't drive. I, I mean, she lost the relationship with her one-year-old granddaughter and that was devastating there. She lost so much. Yeah. And we talk about grief later on and, and you know how, when you have a loss, you go through a grief process. I want to go back to when the headache happened and the stroke happened and you guys had lived this fairy tale life, which in and of itself is, is something that I know a lot of people will, will be envious of. <laughs> and because um, that's, that's a tough feat in and of itself. And thank God yeah. for that. So she had the stroke and it had to have been such a massive shock that that's what was going on. Was there any medical reason? From a medical standpoint, no. was the, okay. No, they, they checked everything. They, they ended up saying, we don't know what happened. You know, she okay. wore a heart monitor for 24 hours to see if it would happen again. And somehow they figure that a, a blood clot came out of her heart and just a freak thing. Now, she was going through a transition from uh, hormones, uh, menopause. Uh, she was on uh, estrogen and, and Provera, and they just switched mm -hmm. her over to Prempro, which is a combination of the two. And that's the only thing that I can kind of link. In those days, they said nothing about uh, hormones causing blood clots. It was only birth control, which wasn't on birth control. Right. But now today, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, hormones will cause blood clots. So that's probably the culprit. Okay. And I knew I have um, a good <clears throat> friend and his wife had a stroke. She had to have been about 40. And yeah, it was, was a birth 52. control. Yeah. It's just so, it's so young. And it was birth control. So I was kind of wondering about that. Yeah. And it and doesn't we tried, matter. We tried to sue, but, you know, within the one year. But uh, the doctors, you know, they, they cover their butts with their little oh, yeah. reports and no one's going to testify against another one. So yep. we just decided to play the cards we're dealt and not cry over spilled milk. We're, we're people of faith. And so we believe if something happens, it happens for a reason and we're just going to move on. Let's discuss that couple years, because regardless of if there was a reason, <clears throat> even if there was, it doesn't stop what has happened at this point. Yeah. Blaming somebody doesn't help, I think. No, but it's nice to at least try to understand it. I think in, for me, and I ask that question because, okay, if this happened, I want to understand why at least. That gives you some right. peace of mind. And also you can avoid it happening again or becoming like worse. like the coronavirus. You know, everybody wants to blame somebody. And a lot of people are blaming Trump. Uh, a lot of people are blaming China, you know. But is that productive? Maybe no. for next time, you know. Right. No, not really. But, you know, I, I think my biggest concern was that it, could she have another stroke? Is there a reason that it happened? Yeah, they say that 50, there's a 50% chance once anybody has a stroke of having another stroke. 
now it's been 23 years. She hasn't had another stroke. And right. uh, she had one seizure. She's never had another seizure. So I don't know. We're lucky. Okay. We're blessed. Whatever. So tell me about that first couple of years right after. It's been 23 years since she had the stroke, since this happened. 23 Holy years. cow. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was 23 thinking, and a half years. So, you know, as time is ticking away. I'm a runner. You, you always put the point whatever in a <laughs> half is a half. You claim it. So tell me about that first couple of years. Because she, did you ever show her the letter? And did she ever write one of her own? Um, no, because she can't write, first of well, all. Well, <laughs> right, but in her and own she, way, did she ever express it, how she felt? No, she had many, many temp temper outbursts, temper tantrums, whatever you want to call them. They were ugly, you know, They uh, because she was so frustrated. You know, she can't do what we're doing, what separates us from the animals, communicate our deep, innermost feelings. And uh, when I would win all the arguments, you know, no, we have to move. You know, she would just go crazy. And I would just have to like leave her in her room screaming at the top, like a two-year-old just, just, you know, banging their head against the wall. She wasn't banging her head against the wall, but just screaming shrill screams, you know, that you can, I'm sure the neighbors thought I was torturing her or beating her up or something, but, uh, and that was really hard for me, but because of the support groups and I says, you know what? Uh, she's grieving and she's angry and it doesn't involve you. Don't take it personally. Uh, you probably wouldn't handle it as well as she is if you had lost your speech. And, and uh, you know, she, she couldn't articulate her case with these arguments, with these discussions about, uh, no, you, you can't drive anymore. Uh, no, uh, we have to move. Uh, no, your mother has to move in with us because I need the help. You know, all the things that she felt so passionately about. No, right. she did know, she knew a few words and no was one of them. You know, it's like a, a two-year-old knows no, right? <clears throat> so uh, it, it, it gets tiring just hearing the same words over and over again because all she says is no, basically. She says, she knows yes and no. Uh, I hear no more than yes, of course. She knows my name. And, uh, you know, she knows like Ralph's, that means let's go shopping, stuff like that. But uh, it, it was really hard for her. And then she would get these terrible, terrible leg cramps that they were just, just so bad. They were like, uh, like labor pain, uh, uh, you know, how labor will come upon you, you know, like every five minutes or so. This is how the cramps were. And, and it, would, it would be torturous. It was like a demon coming to visit her at the night, usually when she's sleeping. And it felt so bad for her because, you know, she would just end up crying all night long because of the pain. So she went through hell and, and I, there was nothing I can do about it. Nothing the doctors could do about it. You know, you give her muscle relaxers. They might help a little, but usually they don't and this and that. And uh, you know, we had three adult children at the time, daughters, and, and uh, they had families of their own, but they would come and help. Uh, the oldest daughter was good in the very, very beginning. She had a big whiteboard, and she, you know, while I was still in the hospital with her, she was six weeks in the hospital, six weeks in um, rehab, and six weeks uh, at home getting rehab. So after six, 12, 18 weeks, you know, the insurance says, okay, that's it. You know, you're on your own. Basically, she's plateaued and she's uh, what she has is what she's going to keep. You can keep working on it, but 
she just decided at one point she had this orthotic, orthotic uh, foot um, to help her walk, but it was so hard and she couldn't wear her pretty shoes. So she had to wear these ugly sneakers. So she decided, I'm just going to stay in my power chair because that's how I want to live the rest of my life. I don't want to struggle. It's like being at Las Vegas and you, you put a dollar down on the crap table. And if you win, if you're lucky enough to win, you get a penny back. The payout just wasn't worth it for her. Yeah. You know, and the speech therapy was so hard and hard, the physical therapy, the occupational therapy. She did as much as she could. And when she saw that it just wasn't uh, re giving her a return on her investment, mm -hmm. she says, you know, I'm just content with, with um, you know, my arm and my leg not working. I'll stay in my power chair. I'm content just using uh, Pictionary and charades. Fine for her, but, you know, I only get 80% of what she's saying. But then they say communication is 80% nonverbal and uh, the rest is, uh, you know, uh, tonality, expression, looks, um, touching, et cetera. And she's got down to, got down to a pad. I've seen her uh, talking to people at, at a restaurant while we're waiting for a table. And they're having a conversation and laughing and joking and slapping each other on the back for 20 minutes. And I look over there, what are they doing? And I go over and he doesn't even know that she, can, that she can't talk. You know, she's communicating. And we went to the New York Publicity Summit where we get guests for our show uh, in New York. And every one of the producers, you know, and even uh, Good Morning America and the Today Show and The View and uh, Kelly and Ryan, uh, those producers would come over because she's like radiant. She's just looks, she dresses like the queen of England in her wheelchair. And they just start a, a conversation with her. She's, you know, communicating with her. And then they'll come to me and I say, well, you know, she can't talk. I said, well, what do you mean? I was talking. And I said, no, you were communicating. So she's, she's got the, uh, the yes and the no and the tonality and the touching and the expressions and the sounds really down good. That's incredible. I know she's incredible. That, I mean, that's, <clears throat> I know that statistically that makes sense, but to see it in action, that's really incredible. And that people don't realize it. That's kind of it is. amusing. Amazing. So obviously she, I can't imagine what I would feel like in her situation or how I would react or how pissed I'd be. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get it. I, I mean, I, I don't, I have no idea how I would respond in that situation and being the caretaker of someone in that situation. So what yeah. were you not doing? What, when you went to the support group for the first time, it seems like it was an aha light bulb moment for you in time. And what yeah. did you realize from that? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm glad that I was on a need to know basis. I'm glad nobody told me during those two years that in, uh, in two more decades, I would still be dealing with this or I don't know what I would have done. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't know what I would have done because there's just things you don't need to know, you know, need to know basis. And when, when I found out about this support group, it was a combination support group because this, this woman visited us in the hospital who had had a stroke. She was a stroke survivor and she came and I saw she was kind of limping around, you know, in her, her orthotic, orthotic uh, leg. And she says, Hi, my name is Candace, and I wanted to invite you to a stroke support group. I'm thinking, oh my God, that was the first glimpse that I've had is, is this what I have to look forward to? Is this how she's going to be? God, you know, 
course, today I realize I would give anything if she was like that because at least she could talk. Mm -hmm. She can't talk. But we went and I enjoyed it a lot. And they send the caregiver, uh, they send this, it was a support group for stroke survivors. So they send the strokes people in one room Mm -hmm. and they send the caregivers in the other room. And and the two just complain about each other behind their backs. You know, the care the caregivers are telling uh, each other, you know, what their loved one did, and can you believe she did this? And I don't believe, you know, I I was so mad, and and so and, oh, well, that's nothing. You wait till you hear what mine is. So we were all venting, getting it off uh, each other's chest, and it was so good. Yeah, it felt so good to be normal and to say, oh my God, I'm not alone. I'm not going crazy. That someone else is feeling the same thing I'm feeling, and they're surviving. They're still here, so I don't have to kill myself. I'm not going to die. So many times I, I would cry myself to sleep. I didn't think I would wake up in the morning. You know, I'd just be dead from the stress. But I woke up the next morning, made it through another day. Imagine that. You know, the Bible says um, that he won't give you more than you can handle. So if you think you can't handle it, don't worry. Uh, you can. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. and then the stroke survivors, they would go and they would complain about us, you know, all the mean things we do to them, how they made, he made us do this and he, he made us, you know, uh, fix our own breakfast because the occupational therapist says it's more therapeutic to make that, don't turn them into an invalid, you know. Uh, my wife was a gourmet cook and she wanted to cook. And so uh, our, her mother was living with us at the time. And so she would try reaching for things on the top shelf, get out of her wheelchair. And her mother said, oh, no, 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 honey, let me get that for you, you know. And she wouldn't want her doing anything. And I would say, no, no, the occupational therapist says, that she has to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, come on, a little more. You're almost there. You know, I'm pushing her and I stand on your toes. And her mother thought I was cruel. But, you know, uh, if her mother had it her say, Charlene would be an invalid, mm-hmm. bedridden today, uh, not having any confidence that she can do anything for herself. But instead, I turned her into, I turned her into a very independent woman. And I'm reaping the benefits of that now because I have more freedom. The more independent she is, the more free I am and the more good she feels about herself that she's not a burden on me or society or you know a lot of uh, loved ones feel so guilty that Mm. they're putting their loved one their caregiver through this and and a lot of them will commit suicide just to free their their caregiver uh, away you know and the doctor said uh, you know don't leave the pills by her bed and I said why he says well you know uh, women usually uh, take their life with pills and men usually use a gun. And and I says, really? And so she, she was depressed for a while. And so he prescribed uh, Zoloft, which is an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are so opposed to antidepressants because they don't know what, what they are. They think they're recreational drugs. Well, I don't want to feel, you know, drugged up. I, I want to be alert. It says, and it doesn't make you drugged up. It just restores the chemical imbalance in your brain. And that's what was going on with Charlena. Obviously, she was depressed about losing all the stuff she lost. But in addition to that, you know, there's a difference between sadness and clinical depression. In addition to that, there was a chemical uh, imbalance going on in the brain, which is very common for stroke. And so she needed something to just take the edge off of life. And now when she gets to the bottom of her pills or a couple of days goes by, you know, maybe it's a weekend, we can't get some. You can just tell she's just a little more impatient, a little more bitchy, a little more edgy. And I said, well, we got to get these antidepressants in you. <laughs> Was she right or left-handed and which side did she lose? 
she is right-handed. She lost her right side. So she had to learn oh. how to write with her left hand, which, you know, she does pretty good, but it's like a kindergarten writing. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't spell that well because the language part of her brain is damaged. So uh, she has this thing called global aphasia, which means she knows what she wants to say. It's on the tip of her tongue. And her, her mind just can't remember how to move the mouth, the lips, the tongue to say and form the words. And her mind can't remind her how to spell the words. Now, she does a pretty good job. It's like playing a game. Um, you know, she might write R-A-L-S. And she wants to say Ralph's, R-A-L-P-H-S. So you got to figure it out. And sometimes it's easy if it's something that she does over and over again. And sometimes it's, it's pretty tough and frustrating for both of us. And if I don't get it after about five minutes, I'll just say, listen, you know, let's forget it. And sometimes she'll say, okay. And sometimes she'll be very angry because she wants whatever it is really badly. But I said, I can't do it. If you can't write it down, you can't say it. I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. I can't and, imagine how pissed I'd be. <laughs> like just that thing where you're like, yeah. oh, you know that word, it's right there when you're trying to, and how frustrating that is. And like an hour yeah. later, you'll just shout it out because it came right. to them. I can't, I, I mean, I, I understand. And I understand your frustration and the need to set boundaries. Boundaries. Yeah, I could talk a lot about that. <laughs> because, well, I think a lot of, you know, you're in a relationship but it's almost a parenting role in the fact that you are a caretaker. And so you have to set back. You can't sit there for an hour and a half trying to figure something out. Both of you getting more escalating when we have to be somewhere and we're late. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. So (laughs) I, I mean, I understand that. And I think boundaries are important for you and for the relationship. Tell me about how you, First of all, when you went to the support group, what did you realize that you really needed? Was it a break in time or away from her like you had been doing with those weekends or was it something totally different? Well, I didn't do the weekends until I learned from the support group that I had permission to do the weekends because they say you need to take care of yourself, whatever is important to you. And uh, with me, I just needed to get away. I needed to get away from her, needed to separate us with space because you know, you're there every single day, just putting up with it. Dave, 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 what is it now? You know? And so for me, uh, because I was able to, and I had her mother living with us at the time, which was great. Her mother hated it. I mean, uh, I'm, her mother loved it, of course, but her, uh, Charlene hated living with her ah, mother. Okay. Uh, cause that's the mother daughter thing, you know, yep. some kind of chemical reaction there, <laughs> but I loved it. <laughs> And after uh, a couple of years, maybe two and a half years, when we moved, she says, that's the time. I want them out of this house. You know, it's either them or me. And, and uh, we had been better now because, you know, uh, we needed them and they served a purpose. But now it was time to transition. And it was a good time to find them. So I bought them a house up in Visalia, California, which is about two hours away. And uh, you would think that they would want to leave happily, but they were offended and thought we didn't want them. And I says, you know, I couldn't tell them that, that her mother, <laughs> I just said, you know, it's a smaller house. There's not enough room for us. You need a house of your own. You know, all the good things. They should have been yeah. happy, but they're just negative complaining people anyway, victim mentality people. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing you can do about them. I mean, a lot of caregivers are like that. You know, 30% of my caregivers in my 37,000 group 
they're very negative. They're very close-minded. They're very argumentative with me. I'll tell them, I'll have a, a thing on it. Caregiving can be fun, you know, and fulfilling. And they just, no, it can't be. You didn't go through my day. You know, there <laughs> was crap all over the place. You know, Westminster diaper. And, and they just go on and on and on. And they just can't see the right perspective. And you know what? That makes the statistic just come to life for me. I says, you know what? That person's going to die. And yeah. there's about 30% of them, you know, out of a hundred people, 30 of them are going to die from the stress because they're just going to kill themselves. We can kill ourselves, you know, Yeah. and we don't realize we're killing ourselves you know, because they're not eating right. They're not sleeping right. They're, they're negative all the time, you know, and, and they get cancer, they get ulcers, a bleeding ulcer, whatever it is. Uh, they just internalize all the bad stuff and it turns into disease. That's so sad. But a negative attitude does a lot. And you you weren't feeling that stressed when you felt No, because I'm a positive person by right. nature. And that was going in my favor. But I was depressed at times. And mm -hmm. I was frustrated at times. And I was impatient at times. And I was, I was acting uh, uncharacteristically of me, which, which helped me to say, hey, this isn't me. Uh, yeah. What's going on? I need help, you know? And, and so that's one reason I went to the caregiver support group. And another reason why I says, boy, wouldn't it be nice? Because I think one of the things that he says, what would you do if you had three wishes? And, you know, and I said, oh, I wish I could just hop on a plane and go away and visit, you know, my cousins I haven't seen in decades. And he said, well, do it. He said, how can I do it? He said, you know, she'll never let me. Well, don't tell her or tell her, you know. Uh, you know, that's a touchy subject. Do you, yeah. do you lie to your loved one? Do you uh, not tell them the whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? You know, right. I'm not condoning lying, but for me, that's what I did because uh, it was survival. You know, I was yeah. desperate. And a desperate man will steal a loaf of bread to feed his family and, mm -hmm. and risk going to jail. So desperate people do desperate things. Absolutely. What did you do and how did it happen that you guys rekindled your love? Cause at this point, like you're ready to, you hit a point where you're yeah. ready to leave and it was frustrating. How did that happen? Yeah. I didn't even know if I was in love anymore. I knew I loved her. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I have a daughter who was going through a lot of rough stuff, uh, uh, relationships. And uh, when she was 16, 17, 18 and I kept asking myself, do I love this kid anymore? I just keep like crazy. <laughs> I've said that a lot. Yeah. So someone said, yes, you love her. You just don't like her right now. I yeah. Said, okay. That could work. <laughs> so yeah, I loved my wife, but there was, there was a, a, a period of time that I did not like her at all. You know, um, I wouldn't say I hated her. Uh, I just hated her behavior. I hated what she was doing. I hated how she was treating me. I didn't like her. I wanted to be away from her. So, but you'd be surprised. You know that song, what a difference a day makes, mm -hmm. 24 little hours. Well, yeah, uh, 48 hours away on a plane with supportive friends who you hadn't seen, you know, it's like a Michelob commercial. Here's <laughs> the good friends, you know, tonight is kind of special. And, you know, I came back just, in such a good mood and so jovial and so happy and so refreshed my my two percent uh, battery that was mm -hmm. flashing danger will robinson was a hundred percent charged mm -hmm. and so i says wow that was a good decision 
I don't yeah. care how much she hated it or how much she complained or, or what wrath I have to get from her when I get back. It's, it was worth it. And I would do it again. And I did do it again and again and again. And slowly, I think she realized, you know what? He's living his life and I'm miserable because misery loves company, right? Yes. They, they want to make you miserable with them. Yes. And I just refused to let her bring me down. And so many, and this is true with two-year-olds too. So many two-year-olds are running the house and they snap their fingers. Oh yes, honey. And the parents are, are ragged because they're living their life around this two-year-old who they've made the center of the universe mm -hmm. and you can't do that and that two-year-old is going to grow up to be a terrible terrible person mm -hmm. <laughs> and god help the person who ever marries that that mm -hmm. person because mm -hmm. they're going to be very self-centered and selfish and and so um you know parenting classes need to be part of the curriculum <laughs> you know? yeah no kidding so no i kidding. Uh, uh your question was um falling back in love <clears throat> oh yeah so i'm i'm asking myself I really asking myself, saying, well, maybe I should leave her, you know, I, I read, that's when the letter got written. And I could actually, for the first time in my life, you know, I could never live without her. That's what, but now I could say, you know, I could live without her. Right. <laughs> I'd be really happy without her, you know, and so many spouses do leave their loved one. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them, while they're even in the hospital, I met uh, people wow. in the support groups that are alone. I said, where's your husband? Oh, he left me when this happened, you know, and he says, I didn't sign up for this. So I'm out of here. And uh, more than you would want to think. Very few take their vows seriously and hang in there. Now, some of them, uh, bless their heart, will separate, get a divorce, but then still continue to be the caregiver, the ex-spouse. And I don't understand that, but it, it happens. So I guess there it must be some love there. Maybe they just can't get along with each other knowing that they're married to each other. I don't know. What a it could be uh, a an issue with sexuality too. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. They I mean, I don't know. Each other. I think sometimes divorce in our mind gives us that separation that we need to not feel guilty about living our own life. Yeah, and now they have the independence, the financial independence. Right. You can't tell me what to do anymore. Yeah. I see who I want to see. Yeah, I get that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I get it too. I don't. I'm not condoning it, but I I understand yeah. that the there's a shift in mentality when you're no longer married to this person. You don't have to live with them, but you love them and yeah. want to take care of them and be there. Yeah, yeah, and, and that I happens a lot. I don't know that there's a right way or a wrong way to do it. I think leaving the person because it's not what you signed up for is horrid, but. Yeah. Uh, at the same but time, this is, what people, this is what people are doing, you know, for yeah. whatever reason, this is what they're doing. They're that desperate. And I was almost there. I was considering it. You know, I was, yeah. I was weighing the options. What are your options? And some, yeah. some of your friends are telling you, Hey man, you don't deserve this. You know, blah, blah, blah. and, uh, but you know, you've got to weigh your own values and morals and faith. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't do it. That's why I just put the letter away and went on. And then, thank God, it was a support group that gave me hope yeah. that, you know, uh, it doesn't, there can be option three, door number three that you hadn't considered. And so that's, uh, that's what I did. Um, and so uh, we might have been, uh, we did go to counseling too, I remember, uh, because we were arguing and yelling at each other all the time. We were going to church and, and uh, the pastor, you know, tried to counsel us and, and he says, wow, you guys just uh, really need to come together. You need to decide if you even want to be married together, you know. And I was shocked to hear him hear that, to say that. 
because mm -hmm. uh, it's like you know every relationship uh, boyfriend girlfriend goes through a phase where you you have a fight and you break up everyone breaks up and then that that's a very beneficial part of the dating process breaking up because it, it tells each of the other person well i can live without them i don't need them you know mm -hmm. and maybe you can but typically what happens is you start realizing wow you know and you start hearing all the criticisms they had about you of why they broke up and you said well i guess i am a little selfish well i guess i do that yeah i guess i do i guess i don't i guess i do and then you start saying gosh i'm, I'm so lonely i'm so miserable i can't sleep at night I, I can't live without this person and so you change your ways and you go back and and kind of that's where we were when he says well maybe you need to just uh, you know separate and, uh, and it's hard to hear a pastor say that because pastors yeah. are supposed to bring marriages together and not separate but it made us uh again it was a wake-up call saying god do we really want to do that you know we were married for so long we were so happy is a stroke really going to cause our marriage to to die we thought nothing could in in sickness and in health for richer or poorer or, you know for better or worse you know that's those were the vows and so i think we both tried a little harder yeah. to tolerate each other so as as she uh well that you got to start that's where it starts tolerating. yeah <laughs> i know start i with, know if you can tolerate something you know you're halfway there <laughs> i'm not disagreeing and then you can learn to love you know right. like I, i'm still tolerating charades and pictionary <laughs> and i'm trying to love the game you know because a lot of people love it why can't i you know but right. it hasn't happened yet jigsaw puzzles all that stuff but um I forget. I lost so did she did she communicate with you when the pastor said that i, I mean it, i i'm guessing that it wasn't just a one-way street so maybe that's incorrect yeah, she does communicate and and um you know it, it's on a very basic level uh, but she'll, right she'll pat her her heart like this say, okay oh, okay oh you know oh so that's like yeah i i'll I'll give in or I'll do something, you know, or whatever. And yeah. so we tried. But like I said uh, before, when I was having all the fun and she wasn't, <laughs> you know, I moved her into the she's an interior decorator, right? Right. And her house was like the, the Taj Mahal. And so we moved to this track home uh, that's half the size and everything's white. It was new. Everything's white, no window dressing. And she lived in that house for a year, just staring at the white walls, which I know she hates she, right you know, right the walls have to have wallpaper and and fancy valances and you know all this stuff and so finally i knew she was coming around when she started uh first of all she asked the boy who lived next door uh, the parents the boy's parents no the parents boy uh if he knew how to paint and he said yes and so she hired him to paint the inside of the house these different colors I said, uh oh, something's up, because I knew she was like back. And then she wanted to have a dinner party because she was put on all these dinner parties because she's a gourmet cook. Mm -hmm. And she and I'm saying, really, you want to can you still do that? Can you still, you know, spend five days at the supermarket preparing all of it? Yes, yes, I could do it. And she did it. You know, I made a video of, of Charlene, the amazing Charlene and how, you know, just all of this stuff. And so she was doing dinner parties. She was doing decorating. She was um, just doing, she was back. Charlene was back. 
you know, uh, with one arm and one leg tied behind her back. You know, it's like the mm. Wonder Woman part. I can do it and I can do it with one arm tied behind my back. And she was doing more than most normal people could do. And that was her right. legacy. That was what people were amazed. They would come over for dinner and say, oh, my God, I, I can't do half of what you're doing. And you're look at you. And well, what am I complaining about? So mm -hmm. she was encouraging people, not realizing it, poo-pooing it when I tell her, oh, you're such an encouragement. Ah, you know. Right. So uh, I don't know if that's false humility or she really believes it. I think she really believes it because she just – you know, well, I can't talk. I can't do this. It took me forever to get her to come on television with me. You know, oh. she said, no, no, I can't. And so finally she came on the first show in Palm Springs and like, she was amazing. You know, she, she was the hit of the show. And then I got her to come on another one in, uh, in Fresno. And then on a different station in Palm Springs, she came on again, just the local show. She won't go to the far away ones, you know, I, mm -hmm. I tried to get her to go to uh, Des Moines, Iowa. And she goes, I'm not going to Des Moines, <laughs> Iowa. There's nothing there. And yet, to, to fate shows you how it is. I was on the plane and there were all these interesting looking people. And they were, uh, you know, like singing and stuff. And, and I says, well, who are you guys? And they said, oh, we are the New York City Ballet. And we are oh. going to perform at the uh, Iowa State University. And I said, oh, wow. And I didn't think anything of it. So I get to my hotel and, I, and they give me a newspaper, front page news, New York City Ballet to open it. I says, oh, wow. And so I had to drive 30 minutes if I wanted to see him from where I was. And I says, I'm going to do it. When am I going to get to see the New York City Ballet? Yeah. And so I call her up. And I says, guess where I'm going to? And she was so jealous. <laughs> and I says, well, honey, you could have come with me to Des Moines, Iowa, but you chose not to. She didn't want me to go. I said, I'm sorry, I'm going, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, if I can't go, you're not going, you know, that kind of thing. So I've I think heard... she just realized, I, I, she just, go, she just realized that, that I'm not going to wallow in my self-pity anymore. She has a relationship with God and she, she'll go like this, you know, I, I spoke with God, God told me it's all right. And, and uh, just, you know, go on. I still love you. I'm still here. And so she just started acting like she did before all this happened. And she has a smile on her face and joy in her heart most of the time now. And that's even more of an encouragement to people and to me. Oh, absolutely. And it took you saying, nope, I'm not going to stay here with you tough, in this. Tough love, right? Tough love. Yeah. I've heard a lot of things, though. I mean, one is finding support. And the other is finding things that you love and doing them. And being happy yourself, which kind of spills out on. <clears throat> So yeah. when people come to you, what are their top grievances or issues or struggles? What's the number one thing that you talk to people about? Well, there's five things that a lot of people come to me about. Three, really. I'll give you the top three. Okay. My opinion, you can edit that cough out. <laughs> In my opinion, um, if they could not do these three things and they they won't be one of the 30 percent that uh, die or even more that get sicker and the first one is and i we discussed this a little put your needs first it's okay to be a little selfish i did a ted talk um on uh, tedx and at harvard and uh, it was uh, caregivers can be it's okay what does it say it's okay for caregivers to be selfish 
And selfish is not a dirty word, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to call my book, uh, the one that says, uh, it's my life too, The Selfish Caregiver. They published it. No, 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 you can't do that. Selfish is a negative word. No one would buy it, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, uh, TEDx embraced it. They says, no, we, we, we like that. There's no self-promotion. I can't promote me. I can't promote everything I've done, where I've been, where I've spoken. Can't promote my gas station. Uh, we just want an idea worth spreading. And we love the hook that caregivers must be selfish in order to survive. So I, that kind of made me think, okay, well, maybe selfish isn't a dirty word. Maybe I can talk about caregivers being selfish because it's either be selfish or die. And it's not that I'm teaching caregivers to be selfish. It's just that they are so on the opposite end of the pendulum, they are selfless. They're too selfless. So it's a sin to be too selfless, I think, and it's a sin to be too selfish. And everyone needs balance. But a caregiver who's being too selfless needs to be very selfish just to move that pendulum enough to where it's, it's balanced. Because you know, a selfless person, no matter how hard they try to be selfish, <laughs> they're not gonna go very far. Right. But we want them to just come halfway, meet me halfway. And so that's, that's the deal about that. So I would, I would tell uh, caregivers that you have to put your needs first. Even the Bible says, love others as you love yourself. And if you don't take care of yourself, it means you're not loving yourself. You're not valuing mm -hmm. yourself. My life is not worth as much as my mother's life or my sister's life or my wife's life. Well, that's not biblical, you know. You have to love you or you don't know how to love others. You can't love your wife if you don't even love yourself. And many marriages have failed simply because the husband or the wife had a low self-image, low self-worth, and... Uh, even though the other spouse loved them, they didn't know how to love back. Right. So that's it. Uh, put your needs first. And again, the, the analogy of the airlines and the oxygen mask. The second biggest mistake caregivers make is they don't know how to ask for help. Mm. Now, you see, everyone has one of these little black things. It's called a cell phone. And you turn it on, you punch in your number, and you talk. Hello, Mom? Yes. I need help. That drive me crazy. You know, call your brother, call your sister, call your wife's husband, call anybody. Yeah. Any notion, if you can't do this all by yourself, that you're a failure as a caregiver, that attitude will kill you. Nobody right. can do it themselves. Third biggest mistake is the guilt. Everybody uh, allows people to guilt them, especially their loved one. Well, you're not doing it uh, good enough, or you're not doing enough, or you know, you don't do it. Uh, like so-and-so does it. Well, you know what? This is where boundaries comes in. You know, yes. people are offending you, guess what? It's your fault. If your loved one is doing things that irk you, it's your fault because you never put a boundary down and told them what would happen if they crossed that boundary, what the consequences would be. Yeah. So for example, uh, okay, I'm not getting any sleep every night. You keep waking me up in the middle of the night because you want water. You're going to have water before you go to sleep or when you, maybe water is a bad example because you don't want them to pee in the middle of the night, but whatever it is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I am available from these times to that time and I am not available from this time to that time. I will be napping. It'll be me time. I'll be Calgon, take me away or <laughs> exactly. whatever it is, you know, and, and, and like a two-year-old, they will test that. Yeah, And then you can either give them one warning <laughs> and say, if this happens again, this will be the consequences. I told you, and I'm serious. 
And then you have to actually enforce it. Do what yeah. you said you were going to do. Don't be like the parent who keeps saying, wait till your father gets home and nothing ever happens, you know. So uh, there are people who are just naturally good at dispensing undeserved guilt. And I think of that show about a caregiver caring for his elderly father in the junk business. You know, it was called Sanford and Son. Oh, Fred my gosh. Sanford was notorious for guilting his son, Lamont. They're doing all sorts of cockamamie harebrained schemes that was not in Lamont's best interest. It went something like this. Oh, oh, this is a big one. No, yeah. son, really, it's a big one. Elizabeth, I'm coming to meet you, honey. It's a big one. And Lamont would fall for that con every single time, and caregivers are the same way. Yeah. It's like being hand, handcuffed to your loved one for the rest of your life, a prisoner in caregiver prison with no possibility of parole. And that kind of guilt will kill you. You get rid of those three things, you've just improved your odds of survival uh, by a lot. Dave, thank you so much for being on and sharing your story. I had no idea you'd make me laugh as much as you did, but I'm very happy about that. No problem. Caregiver Dave, we've got three free gifts for anyone who goes there. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on.